Welcome to the podcast. I'm Carla Joy Treadway. I'm here to help you navigate nuanced conversations and explore topics that demand your attention and awareness. There is no topic off limits here. Together, we will seek to find the middle path, explore the polarities of darkness and light, left and right, grace and grit. As a writer, life coach, and seasoned yogi, I'm in the business of awareness and conscious action. I'm here to create space for the conversations that need to be had in order to create solutions that bridge the divide between humans. Sensemaking will use practical, logical, philosophical, and spiritual tools to help us gain well-rounded perspectives on issues that strike a chord. Let's get started. Welcome to the show. I'm Carla Joy Treadway. Today's guest I've been dreaming about for a little while. Today I'm speaking with Trish Wood from the podcast Trish Wood is Critical. Trish is an award-winning investigative journalist, a real journalist, an interviewer, and she's been blowing up conventional wisdom for decades. For almost 10 years, she was one of the hosts for the Emmy Award-winning investigative current affairs series, The Fifth Estate, and her last project is the critically acclaimed five-part documentary series for Amazon Studios, where she deep dives into a female take on the Ted Bundy murders. She now brings her electric interviewing style, hard-won wisdom, and critical thinking to her podcast. Trish has been a sense maker, a voice of reason, and while never possible to be completely neutral, I can tell, and I think everyone can tell, that Trish approaches journalism seriously, with integrity, and she actually, air quotes, does her research. In this episode, we talk about what happened to legacy media. We talk about awakening to the reality that Canadians especially are consuming propaganda from almost every single mainstream media source. We talk about some of the current narratives and why they're incorrect. This is an incredibly important conversation and along this awakening journey, if everyone in the whole world could just make it to this point, the realization that mainstream media is lying to us the whole world would be in a much better place. Before we get into the show, I have to pay the bills. This episode is brought to you by my membership series, The Sovereign. The Sovereign gives you everything you need to handle a world gone wild. And we're not just talking surviving, we're talking thriving. I'm throwing everything I've got into this membership. We have live and on-demand content that helps you with your mental health, your physical health, and together and with experts, we learn about everything that makes you better, stronger, and more equipped to handle a world gone wild. We talk about creating additional streams of revenue, business, financing, homesteading, gardening, natural wellness, 
And through this entire process, you get to have me as your coach as I coach you to handle this clown world. (laughs) So we work on your mindset. We work on you creating a vision for yourself. So you become an unstoppable monster no matter what. It brings me great joy to be able to offer you this service. And now until the end of the month, you can sneak in here for only 22 bucks a month. We're doubling that price October 31st. So please, please, please sneak in while you can. And you get to keep that price for life, my friends. My only goal is to build community and to make this kind of content accessible for absolutely everyone. Let's get ready for the show. Come and meet Trish with me. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Carla Joy Treadway, and today I have with me Trish Wood. Trish, thank you so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Trish, I am thrilled to meet you because, like I told you previously, you're a real journalist, and I'm not seeing that these days. Well, there's not very much of it around. It was only, I would say, in the last five years that I I had a kind of a sea change moment. And that was, it's not just that journalists working today are bad, it's that they actually don't see the job the way that I did. They don't see their mission the same way I did. They have a completely different framework and context for doing what they do. And and I think to, to kind of summarize that, you know, at, at the get-go here is to say that they they see themselves in service of larger narratives and that their role as journalists is to support a narrative rather than to um, objectively seek truth. And, and even more scary, um, I don't even feel that they really see that they have the kind of accountability role that they should have and that a functioning democracy actually needs, right? Once the politicians figure out that nobody's going to yell at them and hold them accountable, you know, Mm -hmm. you get like what we've got now, right? Which are governments in the West that don't represent what the people want. And if the people band together and speak up about it, they're accused of being populists or far right or something. And the media is right in on that. I mean, I've never heard anybody say to any of these reporters using that phrase what their definition of far right is, because if they did have to define it, it usually would not include the person that they're accusing of being it, right? I mean, that's kind of where we are. So yeah, so I kind of figured it out a year, about five years ago, I was on a website of a a J school at Berkeley, U, U California, Berkeley. And, um, and the, the, the journalism professor was talking about how they must see the world through a social justice lens, which is absurd. Mm. Mm. Yeah, journalists have now turned into activists. It's not just that they support one political side necessarily, but they're definitely supporting an, an, an activist narrative. Um, And maybe they always did. Maybe I just didn't see it. I know prior to the last three years, I didn't see it. I thought, you know, CBC was just good old, friendly, harmless Canadian news. They might do a a news story about an animal in the zoo or crime, (laughs) but it was certainly something I I could trust. This is, is this new or was it always in some like... 
were journalists neutral in the past? Because I, I feel like they were. Well, it's a really good question. And I've been asked it a few times by, by people. Um, I'm not sure that journalists were neutral. And I'm not even sure I could even define that in the context of information gathering, obviously, because we're journalists are not robots, right? We're not artificial intelligence. We, we filter information through our own uh, context of the world. Here's the difference, in my view. The difference is that in the olden days, when I was working in legacy media, journalists primarily came from the working class Right. I got into journalism. I have one year of J school, but I didn't need it to get into journalism. Right. The idea that you had to have a university education to become a journalist is a reasonably like in the last 50 years, new phenomena. Right. And what happened, um, you know, back then was that journalists, I believe, primarily identified with the working class, with the blue collar people and and the idea which is a much more healthy one is that the 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 kind of overarching tension and scenario in our culture is re it's really one of class struggle right it's not it's not all of these kind of diversified little groups who have a grievance right it's really rich against poor and one of the reasons i think they push all of the intersectionality is so that we don't look at the real problem which is and always will be the rich against the poor. Why does Jeff Bezos have everything? And my kids will never be able to probably uh, buy a house in Toronto ever, no, no matter how hard they work, right? There's one of them just coming in with a coffee for me. Say hi. <laughs> That's hi. Truman. <laughs> um, so, so, so that was a big difference just to sort of follow my train of thought. So, so there was a natural alignment with people who, who were poor and who needed both protection from and accountability from the people in power. So now that now that power alignment has changed, right? Most journalists have J school degrees, which I think are garbage and not worth anything, especially based on what they're teaching in universities these days. Um, many of them now, especially in America, come from very highfalutin schools, a lot of Harvard grads and that, and that's a, a very kind of uh, insular, way of looking at the world and a, and a super privileged way of looking at it. They don't see themselves as privileged because they're always screaming about Black Lives Matter, but they're actually really privileged and have no idea what it's like to be poor in America and I would say in Canada too. And that was no more was that really uh, as shown than in the coverage of the trucker convoy. Right. That that was really that was not the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated, in my view. That was the uh, so-called elites, the managerial class, the uh, the technocracy against working people. And that is the reason it scared the shit out of our prime minister, because what you had there was an organic movement of actual Canadians. I was out there cheering and i actually was weepy about the truckers because i'd felt so very much alone um for most of the COVID time being as much of a heretic as i am based on my science background but um so 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 you really saw that during the truckers that you have and you, and you even see it now during the emergency act hearings right there there are people in ottawa who are saying oh the truckers really scared me and all these terrible things happened and then when you drill down and you say what happened they say microaggressions 
right? And you ask, well, how do you even describe my, right. oh, yeah, they can't even do it. So, so there's been an alignment change and, and reporters like Woodward and Bernstein, who were obviously educated, but were still in the kind of swashbuckling days where you ha held um, administrations and politicians and bureaucrats to account on behalf of the people, right? Those mm -hmm. kind of reporters, I won't say that they don't really exist, but they're few and far between. And even the institutions like the Fifth Estate, where I was for 10 years, uh, is doing stories in a way that is almost a rebuke to the way that they used to do them. The Fifth Estate is now aligned with the power elites, as opposed to going after those people on behalf of you know, what we call regular Canadians. But regular Canadians are now disliked by the power elites. So that's how it's played out. And that is how journalism has allied itself and why we're in such terrible... Ter I mean, Andrew Coyne at, I believe, The Globe called the truckers hillbillies. Can you imagine, mm -hmm. like, even 10 years ago, calling working people hillbillies? You don't even know them. You have no reason to say that. Why the hell is he calling them hillbillies? You know, they're afraid of them. You know, they think they're all white supremacists because the prime minister who was a actually using hate speech against the truckers and the other media feel that way. They have so little contact with actual working people that they fear them as they're, the, you know, some kind of like flesh-eating hillbillies, you know, from... Um, you know, from Arkansas or something. I mean, it's really, really weird. And <laughs> My you can favorite that, term that I've what? heard lately is uh, pearl clutching. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pearl clutching, the honking, the honking. And of course, the right? Nazis are coming. Everyone, everyone's a Nazi now. I didn't realize we were in such great danger surrounded by Nazis everywhere. <laughs> well, and you know what? Like that was, I mean, look at the prime. It's no secret that I pretty much hate uh, Justin Trudeau, but not <laughs> because he's a liberal. I was a liberal most of my life, um, but because I think he's dangerous. And I think he's dangerous because he is using their playbook. He could see that what looked like it was just going to be some rinky-dink band of, of truckers had actually captured the national imagination. Remember the footage of the truckers in the Canadian snow coming across those highways through the prairies and people lined up giving them food. You had nuns and in habits, Mennonites, farmers, little kids. I mean, it was like, it was unbelievable. It was like Terry Fox, right? It was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And, all, and not only that, were you seeing the visual representation of an utterly Canadian phenomenon, which did restore my faith and my citizenship, but but the money raising was so fast and they went from a million to two million, like it was happening. Everybody I knew gave to the truckers, right? Mm -hmm. um, so imagine being Justin Trudeau in your carefully crafted woke little kingdom in, in Ottawa and seeing, you know, the folks are coming for you, not in a violent way, but something is awake, right? And and the that awakeness threatened this very, very carefully crafted narrative around COVID-19 and how they were wielding power out of COVID-19, right? If you challenge the vaccines, it was a threat to them because that was a huge, huge power grab, wasn't it? So, so they see this coming and all that really he can do. A statesman, I've said this before, a statesman, even if he disagreed, and I, I include his father in this, 
would have gone out and met with the truckers. They are legitimately Canadian, not Nazis, not any of the things he said. And he would have, whether they struck a deal or not, he would have done them the respect and the, um, you know, the, the, the uh, recognition of going out and shaking hands with them, at least, or me having a meeting with him. He didn't do that. Remember, he fled, he got COVID or something, they fled, and then he came back. <laughs> but but, but um, my point is that 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 the the using of phrases like they're Nazis, they're misogynists, they're this and they're that, that was all happening while the truckers were getting closer and closer and closer to Ottawa, right? He mm-hmm. had to use ad hominem attacks and fake smears while they were on the way because he could see how big. Uh, the movement was becoming and how actually really inclusive it was, right? There were, they came to Toronto just like a quarter of a mile from my, my house, right? And I went down there for the day and, and seriously, there were people there from all walks of life, all colors, all everything. People were dancing and singing. It was all fine. Like that's what the truckers were about. And he could see that. So he had to smear them and set the narrative before they arrived because they were dangerous not to him personally but to his narrative and that is why now at the emergencies act hearing you hear these kind of managerial level ottawa residents who were you know freaked out and traumatized by honking horns saying ridiculous things about being afraid of the truckers they were afraid of them because the prime minister made them afraid of them by accusing them of all these false, except for Pat King. I don't know about Pat King, whatever. Like every movement has a couple of weirdos mm. attached to it. And Pat King Always. is very likely a weirdo, right? He's not yeah. Tamara. And yeah. and they, you know, he wasn't running the show, but that's what the media latched onto. And, uh, you know, and the prime minister did too. So so that was the game plan. These the, the smears are a game plan. They They make the person you are smearing uh, someone who is less human, which is exactly what Fauci did with the Great Barrington Declaration. There were those emails of Fauci saying, oh, we got to stop these guys. They're fringe. And he con- and it's all there in the emails. He contacted some favorable, friendly reporters and they wrote, oh, you know, they're fringe doctors. They want to let the virus rip through the community. And, so, and none of that was true. But but that's what they do now. That's how they operate. And just getting back to your question about media, because it is all tied together. Um, media let them do it, right? Like, there, I, I didn't see anybody challenging Trudeau and saying, like, well, where did you get the information that they're Nazis? Like, where is that? Can we see the data on that? We see that. You know, they don't do that. They let, and they, they let the ruling class get away with everything and they let the populace get away with nothing and that's not democracy i mean that's we we have a real problem right now i'm worried actually i'm worried as well and i think like the biggest problem with media and where we're at as a culture just being so distracted and busy and on our phones people have very short attention spans and no willingness to actually look into things so when the media says don't listen to this doctor, he's been discredited, or don't vote for the conservative party, they're all white supremacist conspiracy theorists, or they only have to say it once. And people listen and say, okay, and they just refuse to, you know, it's, it's no surprise that do your own research was vilified the last three years, don't look into it further, just trust us. And it's shocking 
to watch people actually like they have that level of trust in media. It's shocking, right? I know. And I just I interviewed Jimmy Dore yesterday for this week's show. I'm a huge fan of Jimmy's. And uh, he said exactly what you just said. He said, you know, he was telling people who disagreed with him about COVID. He was doing a lot of his own research. He was right. He was following the great Barrington guys and Marty McCary and the smart people. And he was telling his friends to do their own research. And they thought he was a nut for suggesting that, right? And And isn't it odd now that journalists should you know journalists should be conditioned to never believe what the government says right mm -hmm. to always be questioning now i know in a time of public health you might want to cut them some slack because you think that it, it's a tough situation and maybe we should do that and and maybe for five minutes we should but it was early on in this in the game around covid that uh that we knew what they were those of us who were awake knew what they were doing was absurd right that the the locking down of healthy people never been tried before except during the early the 1918 flu or whatever it was and that they only could do it because the, it had not broken out of the area like it was still contained right once a virus is out there locking down healthy people does absolutely nothing but hurt the healthy people and remove resources from the vulnerable people who need them to be actually protected from it, right? That's simply what the Great Barrington Declaration is all about. And so we knew, those of us who were thinking, I, I knew that Fauci's early uh, predictions about how fatal it was going to be were way off because he didn't have any proper numbers from anywhere. And now I just read something today that suggests that... Um, Given that they were accusing, or not accusing, but but categorizing anybody who had a positive COVID test and who died as a death from COVID, I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true, but I'm going to say it with a caveat. Somebody who was looking at the numbers said that it may be as low as 6% of all the deaths attributed to COVID were actually caused by the virus, right? There were people who... Mm -hmm were sick anyway and had it, or people who were dead and were tested later, like all these things. I don't know that's true. I'm not putting it out there as a fact. Mm -hmm. But people are looking at it, and we all know how sloppy they were. So that would not even surprise me in the least that that was true. Can we circle back to Fauci for uh, people that don't know your history with him? You, in a sense, were were primed to keep an eye on him because yeah. you you have researched Fauci in the past and the AIDS Interviewed epidemic. him. Yeah, interviewed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the way I put it is I have limited respect for Tony Fauci. That's the nice way of putting it. But I covered him back in the 1980s when I was working for As It Happens at uh, CBC. And uh, that there was still, that was a very, very big HIV AIDS time. So he was, Fauci was a big deal. And what was happening was that um, the AIDS people with AIDS is what we called them, were primarily young gay men who had had quite a bit of promiscuous sex, which was kind of how they were exerting their freedom. Fine, I make no moral judgment about it, but it meant that once something got into that cohort, they were in really in trouble because a lot of people got it and a lot, and most people in those days were still dying from it. It was awful, awful, awful. But they hated Tony Fauci because he'd botched so many elements of the fight against HIV, that they were literally chaining themselves to the fence at the NIH wearing signs saying Tony Fauci is a murderer, right? That's how they felt. And they were a very, very interesting patient constituency because they were young, they were smart. 
a lot of them had money. They got up to speed very quickly on the science of COVID and they became this very, very um, annoying to to the medical establishment constituency who were arguing for, we want better drugs and that really interesting guy. It was a fun thing to cover. I liked them all very much and became friends with them. And one guy I became friends with is a guy named Michael Callan, who at that time was the longest surviving person with AIDS, 11 years, which was unheard of. And he and his doctor, Joe Sonnabend, who was a brilliant uh, clinician, he was a doctor treating AIDS patients, um, discovered with other doctors treating AIDS patients that if you prophylax them with a drug called Bactrim, which is just a sulfur drug, it's like nothing easy peasy, right? Cheap and effective and not a lot of side effects, that you could prevent death from PCP pneumonia, pneumocystiscarinia pneumonia, which is the thing that was killing all these guys. It was like a death sentence if you got it. Ugh. If your friend called from the hospital and said, I've got PCP, you said goodbye. And that actually happened to me. I had a, my best friend then was a gay guy named Rick Crocious, who worked for City TV, beloved friend, and he got PCP pneumonia and was dead like five days later. It was wow. like awful, right? So it was really scary. Anyway, so um, they discovered that Bactrim was working, but they didn't hadn't obviously done any double blind placebo controlled yada yada studies. So Michael Callan and Joe Sonnabend and someone else went to meet Tony Fauci at NIH and they said, please, please put out a bulletin. This is a really like non-toxic drug. There's no harm in doing what we're doing with it. Put out a bulletin telling docs, treating people with AIDS to treat them with Bactrim so they don't get PCP. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. And I interviewed Michael Callan um, just before he died in, when I was at the Fifth Estate in a piece that actually never ran. But this was like now in the 90s. And uh, Michael was dying. I think it might have been his last interview. And we had stayed friends. And um, I remember it very well. We were sitting in a very fancy New York hotel, one of the trendy ones. And uh, we were in the penthouse. It was all glass. The city was twinkling, you know, outside. And Michael was in a very contemplative mood. And we got onto the subject of Tony Fauci. And I had said to him, what is the thing, now you're facing death after this big fight, what is the thing that you regret the most that you didn't achieve? And he said that I could never convince Tony Fauci to put out a bulletin for doctors to use Bactrim, right? Mm. He said, I'll never, he wasn't mad. He was like all kind of, you know, resigned, but he said, I'll never understand why I didn't do it. So I went and interviewed Tony Fauci about that at the NIH. I was in his actual office and it was really unpleasant because in those days, the interview style was pretty aggressive and I was sort of famous for that. I was good at it. You know, I'm not sure how useful it is. It's pretty theatrical, but that's what I did. <laughs> Not proud of it, but um, and but with him, I actually, you know, Fauci can handle himself. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. I'm never going to lay a glove on Fauci, right? Mm -hmm. But we had quite a big dust up about it, and and you know, he was kind of trying to weasel out. Well, it wasn't my role, and I wanted more tests, and da da da. And you kind of bring it down to the simplest notion, which is, look, if you'd put that bulletin out, it would have saved 17,000 lives. We know that now. It took two years for that bulletin to go out, right? Mm -hmm. And those things, they seem to kind of slide off of him. Now, he claimed in an interview recently that he has PTSD from his time working on the AIDS file. And part of me 
wants to believe that's true because it was so, so many guys died so quickly. And I know that the, the public health people felt really helpless, you know, and they were young guys too. I mean, it was really off. So, so maybe it's true that he has it, but, uh, but my other feeling about it is, you know, it was his personality that caused some of the problems. And if he actually does have PTSD, why is he staying in that job? Did he make bad decisions around COVID because he has PTSD from the way he handled AIDS? Like, why is that guy still in that job? Why, why, why? I don't, I don't get it, right? I don't, he doesn't operate for me like achieving the ends of the, I would say the um, sort of the protocols of that job are his first priority, right? He's always been in love with vaccines. He's always been arrogant. He's always been um, a guy who refuses to admit mistakes and still won't today. I mean, do we even know his position on vaccines? They work, they don't work, they prevent transmission, they don't. Oh, they never were supposed to. They're just supposed to make you less sick, even though the, vi mm -hmm. the new variant is less bad. I mean, I don't even know what Tony Fauci thinks about viruses or masks or anything else because he's always changing his tune depending on what way the wind is blowing. That's not science, right? He says he is science. It's not science, right? He's something else. And I think the thing he is, is a, he is an example of the swamp creatures that infect uh, government bureaucracies. And the longer they serve, I think the more corrupt they are. It's, it, he's a problem. I, like, let's not forget where we are now. There was a deliberate move by NIH and CDC to make sure that there were no early treatments available during COVID. He did right? the exact same mistakes. Like if it was so traumatic for him, right? why did he do the exact same thing again? Exactly. That's exactly right. And not only that, but the, here's the thing, like in the olden days, in the AIDS times, at least Joe Sonnabend who was kind of like one of the modern day heretics around COVID, right? He's an excellent doctor who was questioning everything. He could get an audience with Fauci, but the guys, you know, who, who are heretics now are, they're not, they not only can they not get an audience, he purposely makes sure that they are smeared, you know, they're fringed, they're da, 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 da. That's what he does. So it's even, he's even worse today than he was back then. I haven't read Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s book but I'm sure there's nothing in there really that would surprise me. And I probably haven't read it because I, I would be so upset by it. I, there's a point where I can't keep doing this. I have to just, you know. I have read it. His sources are impeccable. It is infuriating because um, we're in this weird time and space where facts don't matter. Yeah. Like when yeah. we go back to yeah. smearing people, my, my favorite question, whenever someone comes at me or a discredited scientist, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're spreading misinformation. I say, oh, okay, well, what did I say was wrong? That's wrong. They have no idea. No idea. I know. <laughs> I know. You should be following. Are you following Paul Thacker? I think no. it's called the Disinformation Chronicle. You should. He's the guy who wrote the piece for the British Medical Journal on Brooke Jackson, the Pfizer whistleblower, who was in charge of, or working on one of the local clinical trials of the drug in Texas for a company called Ventavia. So he's got really good credentials, but he now writes a substack that's about kind of taking down the fact checkers and taking down, you know, all these ludicrous, absurd people. 
who yeah. don't deal in facts and who think they fact-checked a story about COVID by calling up the CDC and saying, do you agree with this doctor who's on the fringe or do you disagree? And if, and if you know, Walensky's office says they're wrong, then they go fact-check, you know, COVID heretic wrong because CDC said that's not journalism. That's not mm-hmm. it. Right? Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that you have a, a good understanding of American politics and that you've done your work with, with Fauci, for example, because I know prior to the last few years, I, I did not understand Canadian politics very well, let alone American politics. And I think it's really important to keep an eye on it. One, because they seem to have more balanced media they the people at least get to choose the right or the left whereas i don't think canadians realize the saturation of the left that they're getting from almost almost every single media source and of course every single educational institution i know i never knew that until yeah the the last few years that's a really interesting uh idea i i don't do the americans have more just i mean they at least have Fox News. They at least, <laughs> they at least they, yeah, and they and the conservative movement there has more. You know, they've got the Daily Wire and other stuff. Like Daily Wire is really uh, killing it with some of their docs, right? They did oh, uh, yeah. What Is a Woman, which you know, I mean, it was glib and stuff. But 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 look at you know, Matt Matt Walsh. There's stuff about Matt Walsh that bugs me. Like I feel like he's a bit of a kind of a male chauvinist pig, right? But. Yeah. But I don't, I can still be friends with those people. You know, it doesn't make me crazy. Um, And I sort of enjoy it, actually, because it's so Mm -hmm. kind of outre. But but, um, he did a momentous thing, and and it was as good as anything any journalist has done in the last 20 years. And I'll tell you what it was. Very simply, he starts off by being glib. What is a woman? Ha, ha, ha. What is a woman? Right? So that's kind of very, um, who was the guy that did uh, Fahrenheit 9-11? Michael Moore. It's very Michael Moore glibishness, right? Where mm-hmm. you can tell a serious subject by being silly about it. Yeah. So that was fine. But but then he got serious when he was interviewing the um, the experts, you know, mm-hmm. the the surgeons and the psychologists and stuff. And and he he whenever he asked them a question that required actual data or facts, right? Mm-hmm. The response was, I'm stopping the interview. Clearly, you're transphobic. I'm Mm -hmm. not doing this. To a man or woman, all of them tried to stop the interview when he pushed them for actual data, right? And that is extraordinary. We have this movement that, in my view, is mutilating children before they can possibly have any Mm -hmm. idea about what they're thinking and what they are. It doesn't seem to be accountable to anyone, and the science does not back up what they're doing, right? Like, it's it's this really kind of interesting tautology that I dealt with when I kind of blew the lid off of uh, satanic ritual abuse and um, multiple personality disorder, right? It was the same tautology. We were interviewing these nutty psychologists and psychiatrists who were diagnosing women oh you've got 150 personalities and one of them is a two-year-old girl another one is a 95 year old man and you don't know you have the personalities because you keep i mean it was just ridiculous and and oprah would have them on you know multiple personality like it was just so stupid 
And uh, it, it, it ended up being an, art, an artifact of, of hypnotherapy. They were kind of creating the problem they were diagnosing, right? And it's now, no one does it anymore. No one believes in it. It's gone. It's taken out of the DSM-5. I think there's a little bit on something called dissociative yeah. disorder, right? But and then, and then that was connected to recovered memory, where they said to women, women would come in with a depression and they would, oh, sorry. Sorry. Sorry, my phone just rang. Uh, women would come in to be treated for depression and they would come out being told by the psychiatrist that the reason they're upset is because they were abused by their parents from the age of two till 18, but they just don't remember it. And they don't remember it because they have multiple, I mean, it's like ludicrous, right? And and so, and, and we, mm -hmm. Michelle Mativier and I, she was my producer, did two documentaries on that. Um, one of them called Out of the Mouths of Babes and the other one called um, uh, Mistaken Identities. Which were groundbreaking. Like they, people were still believing this when we did them. So we took a lot of flack over it. But we discovered the same thing that Matt, I, I understood the paradigm instantly because we saw exactly what Matt Walsh saw, which is when this one guy named Roland Summit, Dr. Roland Summit, famous psychiatrist, involved in training young therapists to look for satanic ritual abuse in children who didn't remember it or know about it, right? Um, and I pushed him in the interview and he, you know, he was like, not happy about being challenged. Like it was a thing. It was a moment, right? I was in the room with camera sound producer, probably an AP, right? And he was like, really pissed off. And I wasn't being all that aggressive. I just, he was like Tony Fauci. He wasn't and like the people in Matt Walsh's film, he was not used to people actually saying prove to me what you just said. I want you to cite for me the research that proves what you just said, because what you're saying is dangerous, right? You challenge these people and they fall apart. Mm -hmm. And that's just circling back. I know I'm going on, but I'm on, I feel like I'm on a roll because I'm coming to a point. And the point is this, mm -hmm. media's job is to ask those questions all the way along. And we would not be where we are with this disaster of uh, childhood sex reassignment. Um, terrible COVID policy and now maybe a nuclear war between America and Russia over Ukraine. None of these things would be happening if the media was saying, prove what you're saying. Show me that's true, right? Everybody, all these powerful people know nobody's going to ask them a hard question. Nobody's going to ask them a hard question. And you know how you know that? Because when someone finally does, like little Peter Ducey, <laughs> you know, on Fox, who's kind of funny, they, they can't answer it or they tell an obvious lie, right? But... Right. Right. You don't see the media who should be safeguarding children's health saying to the people at Vanderbilt the way that Matt Walsh did, where is the evidence that amputating the breasts from teenage girls is good for them? And where is the evidence that their claim that they're feeling genderish is actually body dysmorphia and not maybe she's a lesbian, maybe she's got um, a borderline personality disorder. A lot of them are cutters. You know, if you see they've got the razor blade thing, that's a, that's borderline personality disorder, right? They're super vulnerable to suggestion. So, they're, but you're, we're not allowed to ask that question in therapy anymore because that's considered uh, conversion therapy now, right? So if you ask, this is the law here and it's the law there. If you ask young kids who think they're gender-ish what mm -hmm. else might be going on, you can be charged criminally. And that is not a lie. That law was passed in Canada. They're not allowed to ask the question. All they can do is affirm 
affirm, affirm. So where none of this would be happening. This is my thing. None of the bad things that would be happening if the media was doing their job, right? If they, if these people knew they'd be held to account and that actual legacy media would be on the doorstep saying, wait a minute, why are you amputating the breast girls with no evidence that it works? They wouldn't be doing it, right? But they right. all get away with it because nobody ever holds them accountable and they know it now and that's very dangerous. We're at a terrifying place with these, uh, they are far left agendas that are being vigorously pushed one narrative and if you even so much as ask a question like show me the data whether that's climate change or pushing gender theory on yeah. kids or yeah. what did black lives matter actually do instead of answering the question it means something about you that you ask the question so if yeah. you belong to a certain narrative if you belong to a certain identity group what it means now is you are immune from criticism that yeah. you are not allowed to poke holes in the theory at all and that is just a recipe for disaster it's very very scary i mean look at jesse smollett right who you know was busted for lying and should be kind of laughed out of hollywood you know he's kind of making a bit of a comeback now right but but that is true that you can't even ask the questions, which is why guys like Matt Walsh, who can be annoying, uh, are showing enormous courage. There's also some women, like I, I can't ever like not shout out our lesbian sisters, right? And well, JK Rowling, who's not a lesbian, but Julie Bindle in the UK is one of them. And um, Kara, somebody here uh, in, in America also, she has a great substack, are also doing the really, really hard, hard work on exposing um the uh the the extreme trans agenda and how completely misogynistic it is and i believe it is like look at this guy at oakville trafalgar the teacher wearing the fake breast prosthetic you must have seen that right oh yes yeah. <laughs> yes okay. so women all know this hey, hey women don't look like that we don't we don't look like that right um and b most women also know that men who are into that kind of gear have a fetish. So this is not just some poor kind of Caitlyn Jenner trans guy, legit trans guy who wants to be a woman, thinks he's a woman and wants to go about his business peacefully and be left the fuck alone. That's fine. You know, mm -hmm. I, that's cool. This guy is dressing like a transsexual, right? Like he, he has maybe autogynephilia, a person who, a man who gets aroused by wearing women's clothes and, and usually these extreme feminine kind of characters because women don't look like that. That's like a Jessica Rabbit sort of nightmare thing, right? Mm -hmm. And yet legacy media wouldn't like when I saw it, it's and this is what shows where the mental illness is now like when I saw it I was like oh my god are they really this can't be real are they really su subjecting grade nine students to that? I mean grade nine boys are all a bit nuts anyway right and they're having to go to school to look I mean really it's so bad uh, and legacy media was standing by the Halton district school board for their you know their courage they're so stunning and brave to stand behind this guy right who clearly is not just some regular trans dude who deserves 
some love, care, and respect. I'm not against that within reason. He's something else, and they won't deal with him that way. And if you call him that way, you're a bad person. I even had one of my listeners, and I, I love them all, but even she said, you've been, you know, we, we should be being kind to this guy. And I'm saying, like, wait a minute here. He's not being kind to the students. He doesn't, he could come in in a skirt and no one would care, right? Why does he have to wear that huge prosthetic? What, what is he, he's getting something out of it, and what he's getting out of it is sexual, and that is a bad thing when he's around children. Right. But no, there was no legacy media. There's something very sinister. There's something very sinister happening with our children. I would like to think it's incompetence, but I, I just can't think that anymore. When I think of that example and you're putting an adult's needs before the kids in the classroom, you know, yeah. that's one example. Yeah. During all of COVID, we knew yeah. children were not vulnerable to COVID, but the teachers were scared and you had to protect the teachers by sacrificing the children. That didn't make any sense. You and are my new spirit we're looking animal. At... Yeah, I agree. You're my new spirit <laughs> animal. No, it's true. I, I, I mm -hmm. said exactly that. I did a show after the Uvalde shooting. I had been on a rampage about what they have done to teenagers. And I think specifically teenage boys, but all kids were destroyed by the, these terrible lockdowns. And the solution was an easy one. Again, the media didn't go after them. The solution is, if you're too afraid of COVID to teach, you can teach remotely and the kids can go to school in person, right? And we'll hire mm -hmm. a bunch of young, healthy, non-COVID vulnerable people to herd them around and you can appear mm -hmm. on the screen so they don't miss school. But they didn't do that. And I'm telling you, I will never look at teachers the same way again. They've totally mm -hmm. ruined any kind of historical reputation they had as people who cared about children. The Uvalde thing was interesting for me because I, I knew and I'd spoken to a lot of experts um, who said that this is going to cause a lot of mental illness in kids, right? And so if you look at it through that lens, both um, the guy in Uvalde and the chap in the Buffalo supermarket shooting, when they happened within two weeks of each other, right? They were both young. They'd both been like 16 when the school closures started, right? Mm -hmm. Both loners anyway. So they now had no exposure to people at all um, in kind of dysfunctional families. So what happens when you bring about another layer of mental illness on people? If, they're, if, if their baseline... Uh, function is fine, they get a little depressed, right? If their baseline function is down here already, and then you layer on this hugely traumatic event, then they're in the toilet, right? And I believe, my myself, that um, both of those shootings can be laid in part at the feet of closing the high schools that they'd been going to for COVID. I, I really absolutely do. And we are now we're seeing all this stuff in the States about um, and here too, about, um, you know, uh, shootings in stores and people breaking into things and, you know, crimes out of control. And part of that, yes, is defund the police. There's no question about that. I think part of it is also racial. Mm -hmm. um, but I also believe that that is an expression of how traumatized 
we all were from the COVID-19 policies. All of us are not as healthy now as we were two and a half years ago mentally. None of us are. I, I know that to be true. And as someone who's in recovery for alcoholism for like 22 years now, I, I'm pretty good at taking my own temperature about where I am, right? Mm-hmm. And when COVID hit, I'd just come off a big dog we'd done on Ted Bundy for Amazon. It was like two years of swimming around in that vile information. But but I was kind of, I, you know, so I finished that. I was mad at all men and what a bunch of they killed, you know, like my husband and I were arguing because I was really hostile to men after that film, which I obviously got over with therapy. Um, but then COVID hit, right? So, and I know when I see, like, I'm not the same person. I'm much more antisocial. I have anxiety now that I didn't have before. I was like the toughest, you know, hitchhiking off the runway in Rwanda during, seriously, like that's the kind of stuff I did, right? Mm-hmm. Now I'm much more timid. Um, we're, we're all different in some way. And, um, and I think that these other events, the crime, the shootings, all the other stuff we're seeing um, is a result of traumatized citizens from COVID policy acting out and not realizing that that's the reason. I I think that is a reason for people. It is a trauma and it's leading people to what's being labeled as conspiracy now, right? Can we talk about that word conspiratorial? That's another word that the media says. So the, the bulk of the population says conspiracy, don't even give it a second thought. And unfortunately, they have misfiled that word. They think conspiracy means not true. Conspiracy means to conspire. It means there's another reason why they're doing things. And the amount of people that are thinking that way is there's not that many people that have lost their mind. Like it's not the idea of someone living in their parents' basement, searching through rabbit holes. Like these things are real. And one thing that I'm really concerned about politically, when I look at how the media was and how they're operating today, the media is absolutely working hand in hand with the government. Yeah. And what it seems to be doing is eliminating free speech. And if you eliminate free speech, that means we no longer live in a democracy. And I think that's exactly where we're headed, especially when you pair that with these extreme leftists, not liberal. I was a liberal. That's why I've left because it's no longer liberal. It's leftism. It's socialism. Another word that people don't understand well. Um, are, Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Like the media is just acting as a hand of the government. And I'm not gonna say I know exactly what's going on, but the goal does seem to eliminate dissenting opinion. Well, they're not holding anybody to account. So that's your first clue, right? That there's something that there's something going on. I mean, I think part of it, I think part of the mechanism, as I alluded to earlier, is that media now um, relate to power, to the power elites, to the managerial class, more than they relate to the average citizen. That for sure um, is part of it. But on the conspiracy thing, you know, I watched, and if you haven't watched it, you should. This is my second time watching it, the brilliant, brilliant HBO series on Chernobyl. And right, I mean, it's so good. And, And I watched it again last week with my husband and I was sitting through 
the discussions with the scientists who are being told to lie by the Communist Party, like you're either with us or you're against us. This is what the party wants. This is what you have to say. This is what the truth is because the party says it's truth. And I kept saying to my husband, oh, my God, that's COVID. That's what they're doing to scientists around COVID, right? That the, the, the party, which is the lefties, right, mm -hmm. um, have a narrative about what COVID is. And if you don't toe the line as a journalist or a scientist or a doctor, you're punished for it. And the punishment can either be massive, like it was for a guy like Scott Atlas, who really was you know, treated very, and, and also Jay and those people were treated very, very, very badly. Um, but also the journals don't, I talked to, um, to uh, Joseph Freeman the other day, who's done a big study on vaccines. And um, he says, if you're not publishing toward the narrative that they want, it's hard to get a study published, even if it's really good, right? So all of those things are happening that make it appear as if we are living in the era of Soviet information control. And what's interesting about the Chernobyl analogy is that Chernobyl, as I understand it from the show, I haven't done independent fact checking, but in the show exploded because they were lying about a problem with the reactor, which is that if you try to shut it down too quickly in the process of shutting it down and then you hit the stop button, whatever it was called, you get a meltdown, right? You get a core meltdown, right? Which is the end of the world. You know, it's like a nuclear bomb going off, which it sort of was, right? So it, it, it not only shows how the scientists in, so not all, there were great heroes there too who exposed it, but but how the scientists and the bureaucrats who run the scientists f believe that you that they, they should have had fealty to the Communist Party over truth itself, right? Science has to be about seeking objective truth or it's nothing. And that's what we have now. We have nothing now. We don't have it. None of it's credible because the big big stuff isn't credible. The journals aren't credible. The, the people at FDA, I mean, they're just approved of... of vaccine on eight mice right yeah. the studies on the new it's eight mice right and our prime minister up here is threatening us with our stupid premier who doesn't know has asked from page three i mean it's remarkable that this guy is even in that job i can't believe he was reelected. but but he's he and trudeau are now threatening maybe mandates maybe punishment for people not getting a booster that was approved only on eight mice like this is overseeing all, we have a federal regulatory body called the Health Protection Branch. That's how we stop another thalidomide, right? So the pharmaceutical mm -hmm. companies are just saying, here it is, we did eight mice, poof, go ahead. And they're all lining up to say yes and then ordering us to do it, right? It's boggles People don't understand why the convoy happened. And when I think about that example, like people thought I was losing my mind because they were building like facilities, even here in my own town, they're building these new detainment facilities. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was terrified as an unvaccinated person and people yeah, yeah. were telling me I lost my mind. And I said, well, why is CTV putting out surveys saying, should we jail the unvaccinated? That's mm -hmm. For me to put the two of those things together, the news is saying that we should be jailed, and now they're building jails. 
And they certainly did. They did in Australia, New Zealand and China, all kinds of places. But that's, you know, you you as an, I I said this on the show, I think, or maybe it was in a sub stack, but the people who refuse the vaccine are the great heroes of our time now. And, And you should really hold on to that because I know as an unvaccinated person, what my struggle was and and everybody thought i was mental including my kids who now think i'm smart but they didn't think i was smart then which kind of bugged me because i was like wait a minute your mom was a science reporter i'm saying no based on a whole bunch of stuff that i know i'm not some weirdo who's just being obstreperous right like i actually know how to read a study and six months is not long enough to get data you can't know long-term harm if you're only saying how do you know that for six you can't do it right but yeah. I think that that, that like, I'm, I'm sure it was true for you, that added a layer of stress and tension. You know, I couldn't fly. My kid graduated from Dalhousie with an honors degree. I couldn't go. I had to send my older son, right? Like, that was awful. My kid who spent two years at a COVID school. Dalhousie was a COVID school. They were, he was sitting in a basement apartment in Halifax alone doing his 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 uh, university years which should have been fun and full of meeting people right so so I, I i know people paid even bigger prices you couldn't go into hospitals i know if my husband had gotten sick i wouldn't have been able to go in that mm-hmm. would probably have been the only thing that would have caused me to get it that's that would be if i had a sick kid that i couldn't get to in hospital because that then i would risk my life with a vaccine or and it's not even risking my life with a vaccine i don't care that much one way or the other i mean i didn't necessarily think i was going to die if i took it i just thought they hadn't proved their point and i wasn't going to go along with it it was just me being kind of stubborn but but i would have got it in that circumstance i think but that's an awful way to have to decide that you're going to take a shot in a free country, right? It's like ridiculous. And look at the price other people paid, you know, dead children and losing their jobs and everything. I mean, so these people are our heroes. And it is a, they and and the truckers really, and I think it was the same group, obviously, but they restored my faith in being Canadian. I wanted to move to Florida. I was kind of like thinking about it. I'm ready as well. (laughs) Yeah. I know it's so funny in a world that is obsessed with the world with the word privilege. We have a real Western privilege right now. One to think that nothing would ever go wrong in Canada. Our officials are so much better than the officials of like the Soviet. They would never do anything. Um, And then they're exactly what you said about Ottawa. We have pearl clutching elites poo-pooing and shaming the working class you have whole groups of minority groups um like let's look at the black community saying hey we remember the tuskegee experiment or the indigenous people remembering exactly what happened to them with smallpox but we're going to ignore that there's a very strange selective rage amongst the left in terms of privilege again or how about well let's just um so climate change is happening if everyone could just not be poor and buy a tesla we're gonna just do whatever we can to cancel power for the country now yeah (laughs) i know right no i mean it's it's it is ludicrous and it is absolutely not sustainable what 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 is happening now is not sustainable and it is soul crushing i mean i said to jimmy Dore yesterday 
um, you know, how, because he's very much like us, right? Like he's a former lefty. He's really smart. He's on top of all this stuff. And, and I think I agree with him on almost every subject. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Um, although he probably still calls himself a progressive maybe, but I, I don't. I'm long gone from any kind of cate- categorization that way because they're so embarrassing. But, but um, you know, I, I think for us, the change is happening. It's happening fast. Um, I'm not sure how stoppable it is. I feel like we're we're at a moment now where people are starting to say, look, I'm not racist, so don't do that. Like, I'm not going to play that game with mm-hmm. you. Um, and where parents are stopping the nonsense in schools, you know, where they can. I don't know how all those lunatics got into the teacher's jobs. I, I look at libs of <laughs> TikTok and it's all teachers. I'm like, what is the hell is going on? Really, like, you know, I thought they were just sweet, like little ladies with a bow in their hair who loved children and were really smart. Like, that's probably (laughs) pretty sexist. But but you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know they had purple hair and they had 88 genders and they wanted to smash capitalism and stuff. I I, I don't know. They want to talk about sex with our little kids. It's it's disturbing. Yeah. So. I don't, I don't, I want to respect your time here, but that that's something that I do need to touch on. You touched on Chernobyl and the Soviet, and I've been doing an incredible amount of research in terms of communism. I've looked at the red guard in China and so I've researched so much of Marxist literature, which Marx, his whole goal was to, it was all a class role, a, a class focus, but he wanted to destroy society. And when I listened to a James Lindsay podcast about how Marx used early sexualization of children as child, my top nearly blew right off because I just think, why do we keep doing this stuff to kids? It's clearly causing harm. And then when I heard that, that that was straight from a Marxist playbook. I'm writing that down because I did not know that. So this was, do you know what podcast it was, what it was called? I'm going to send it to you. Would I you? It's called Groomer Schools. And okay. James is hard to listen to because he's, he's angry and he's incredibly intelligent. Probably one of the yeah. most intelligent people I've ever listened to. Yeah. Um, it's upsetting when you understand history and the problem now a lot of people a lot of young people especially in canada have a beautiful utopia of socialism painted in their minds yes and they and it again it's a misfiling of a definition Uh, i looked up the definition woke for example the other day and woke says you are aware of social issues and care about other people and i thought that is not what it means and it's the same with socialism they they think socialist they think canadian healthcare, and they think no that's good it means you care about other people and you draw to their attention what is currently an a true socialist society today which is technically china um, yeah. or you look at any example in history every single example in history led to mass starvation and death Every single time. Yeah, it never works out for them, does it? No, and I have a microcosm story about that too. My uh, my grandfather, who was Finnish um, and a magnificent human being, ended up on the west coast of Vancouver. Um, well, there's only one coast there. Uh, of Vancouver, 
in a place called Sointula, which is a Finnish settlement. And the Finnish settlement was a socialist utopia. That's how they, it's what it was, right? And um, and it's still there. I don't think it's socialist anymore, but it's still, you can go there. I think it's on Malcolm Island, maybe, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, so they had this socialist thing, and then, of course, it fell apart because human nature makes those things fall apart, right? You can't do those things with actual human beings because we're flawed and we want more, you know? So, so that little kind of experiment didn't work out. There, a lot of those old guys, though, he was a fisherman, right? And he was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, and that is true. They were those old fishermen out in B.C. I don't know why. There must have been a reason. Hmm. So what information do you go to that you trust? Is there any legacy media left that that is worth listening to? Or is it all podcasts and Substack these days? I do a legacy media review every once in a while because I need to know what they're up to. Mm -hmm. um, but I, no, I would say I don't. I Tucker Carlson, I never miss for good or ill. Um, I, I don't always agree with him. And I think he's getting a little out there with his performance, but uh, he laughs a lot. But um, but he's a, he's a very critical thinker. You know, he mm -hmm. does things that make me, like when he said, why the hell does Zelensky think he can just demand money from us? And it, like, you don't think of it that way, but yeah, why is that guy, you know? So I, I, do, I do watch Tucker pretty religiously. Um, but I'm a Substack person. I, I, you know, there's a couple people on Chris Bray. I really, really like Eugippius on COVID. I really, really like. Um, I check in with Alex Barents, and even though I find him somewhat annoying because he's really good on a bunch of stuff. <laughs> um, and uh, Karen Hunt is someone I love too. So there's a bunch of people, um, but. There, there's danger in curating your own media too much, too. That's one of the problems we have, is that there, there is no universally respected town hall where we can all feel we're getting the same information and it's good, right? And the more siloed we are, mm -hmm. curating our social media, curating our substack, da-da-da, um, the more disparate we are from me and the more distant too we are from each other right that's that's a big problem the other thing i'm doing a lot of is i'm reading a lot of history books now like i i read a, a book called nazi medicine which was super important big tome famous about the run-up to the holocaust not saying that the COVID policy was like the holocaust i know get but, <laughs> but I, I was interested to know what happened in the years leading up to it what was going on and what i found out was that the scientists and the doctors in Germany were the first people to sign up for the Nazi party. 80% of them did. Yeah. And it was all about all of the little winnowing of, of, of rights in that country were all in the name of public health at the beginning of it. it it's true. They, the, the Nazi party even had a ministry of healthy bread because Adolf Hitler was a health nut. Mm -hmm. And so they were telling you what kind of bread to eat, which sounds like nothing, but it is, if you read that history, it is a slippery slope. It is a slippery slope for sure. Like it seemed like a good idea. It was all in the name of, you know, all of us doing better and looking out for your fellow citizens and stuff. And then the next thing you know, you're on a train, right? It's always painted as a utopia. You might like, I don't, maybe you've read it. They thought they were free. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 
that if you read that book and and can't see parallels to what's happening today it's i don't know what to say because there's something wrong well some of us feel it and i julie panessi and i had a conversation about this recently and she asked why i thought some of us got it and some of us didn't and i i said that i feel the people who got it are much more deeply humane mm. right you're asking well if we lock down what happens to the kids what happens to the addicts who can't go to 12-step meetings what happens to people not getting their cancer like we were all asking those questions which made us mad and that's why we knew lockdowns were stupid because they were killing people right yeah. but i think the people who bought in them so easily maybe they're less humane in their view of the world you know I think that's so true. You know, people don't need to agree with me. I have many friends that are, are vaccinated, but the people that attacked and canceled and shamed and like they, they were hungry for thirst, like jail the unvaccinated, fire them. Yeah. Good. I'm glad they're suffering. I mean, it really brought out people's true colors. The good people got better. The bad yeah. people yeah. got worse. And a yeah. lot of people who you thought were good turned out not to be so good after all. Ann Bauer said to me, she's a novelist who had a big change, went from being quite a lefty in Minneapolis to really questioning everything because of COVID and school closures and stuff. And she said on the show, um, I really learned the old adage that they teach us as Jewish children. And that is, make sure you know which of your friends will hide you in the attic. Mm. And, who and that's what she was thinking during COVID, right? People were not speaking to her because she was speaking out against school closings, right? Who's going to hide you in the attic? I see one other thing in the people that are awake. It's um, we have this polarity of sides right now, right? And the fact that both you and I were willing to leave uh, our liberal place in order to move somewhere else, it, it says a lot. It says that our values are more important than our identity group. Absolutely. And we're yeah. willing at any time to change our opinion, to move. And it's not, you know, it, I always listen to the CBC and I can always trust them. Or I always vote liberal and everyone on the right is bad. You and I don't feel that way. We are just looking for, I guess it's the name of your show. We're looking for critical information and yeah. we will move if need be. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very important to have that kind of agile thinking. And I feel that we live in a time now where it's getting more and more and more entrenched. Mm -hmm. And um, something has got to happen. I mean, I hope there is a populist uprising and that we get, we elect people who uh, think the way we do. But, um, I, I, you know, even Pierre Polev has now upset me. He's like all in on Ukraine and... Putin's an evil dictator and we must end blah, 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 you know, it's just, he's not. And oh, and the housing crisis in Toronto, you know, we've got to solve it with condos, which is like completely wrong. I mean, you know, the how it's just like, yeah, you can't, if you, you, it makes me think that his being correct on COVID was something that was kind of handed to him and he didn't figure it out on his own because organically you have to think critically about everything. You can't just say, oh, the media were totally wrong about COVID, but I'm going to believe them on Ukraine now, or they're mm -hmm. totally wrong about this, but I'm going to believe them. You know, I mean, ugh. they're just lying to us about we're most at, things. And we're at the tipping point because they went after the kids. So un unfortunately, yeah. that that is that is the metric that will swing everything. We're already seeing it. Children are already getting hurt. 
they're depressed. No one's working. Um, that, that is the metric, unfortunately, that will turn this around. Yeah. Well, I think so. I think that the, the sexualization of children, you know, they're destroying them during COVID. Now the sexualization, you look at the videos of these parents taking their kids to these not family friendly drag shows to with twerking. I mean, it's just, yeah. And they're smiling and their kids are handing them money as if it's a stripper and it's some kind of a transaction. Those transactions in a strip club mean that you want a private dance. I mean, it's just like, what are you doing? And they're so captured by wanting to be cool or wanting to be seen as a damn. I don't know what, what it is, but this, you're right to say, this is a tipping point because mm-hmm. they are going after the children, right? And people who were maybe dozing are now awake to protect the children. Trish, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. I could talk to you all day long. All <laughs> Me day long. too. I'm, I'm going to phone you later. <laughs> <laughs> um, where can people find more of your material? So I have a Substack. I just published a new piece today on um, my discussion in like 19... 19- 81 or 1980 with John Kenneth Galbraith about nuclear war. So that's uh, a pretty interesting piece, timely. So go there. And then my podcast is on every platform. It's Trish Wood is Critical. My website is info at Trish Wood. No, my 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 website is trishwoodpodcast.com and my uh, email is info at trishwoodpodcast.com. So, and we are uh, reader and listener supported. So... If you like what we're doing, please support us. It's what keeps us being able to keep the lights on around here and um, thinking critically about really important stuff because most people aren't. That's bad. It's really bad. Yeah. Well, I'm a subscriber. Highly recommend everyone. I'm halfway through your latest one about nuclear war. It's it's hard to listen to. And again, (laughs) it would be it would be a privilege. I would be privileged if I thought I didn't need to pay attention to stuff like that right now. So thank you for being brave enough to have all the conversations that we actually need to hear right now. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to be on, Carla Joy. Keep on going. Thank you. I don't know about you guys, but I could listen to Trish talk all day long. Do you ever feel like that when you meet someone like Trish? You're like, thank God there's someone that's speaking some truths, some common sense. And it feels deeply comforting to know that there are actually still real journalists out there. If you currently work for CBC or CTV, I want you to take a good hard look at yourself. Remember during the last couple of years when CTV was putting out surveys to ask if the unvaccinated should be jailed or fined? Do you remember when CBC told everyone that nothing was happening in Ottawa, they turned off the cameras and pretended that there were just a couple people? The media lies to you. And it's unfortunate that we can't trust those sources of media anymore because I remember a time when I would watch CBC a lot and it seemed really harmless because I always believed that Canada was a safe place where this kind of corruption would never happen. And it really rattled me to come to that realization that that simply wasn't true. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe to Trisha's podcast. Um, It's absolutely mind-blowing. She puts a ton of effort into doing proper research and bringing other guests onto her show that are of high, high integrity. And if you like sense-making, subscribe, share this episode, tell your friends about us. If you put us up on Instagram and your stories, we'll make sure to tag you too because we really appreciate that effort. It helps us get our content out and we would love to return the favor. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you guys next time.